You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia. And I'm her frequent co-host, Helen Pluckrose. This is a podcast about politics, society, science and art. And about how everyone is wrong apart from us. This podcast is brought to you in association with ARIO magazine, a digital forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To become a patron and gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks, support us on Patreon at 2 for Tea. Welcome to The Conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest today is David Lay. David is a clinical psychologist uh, practicing in Albuquerque, where he is the head of a large mental health clinic. He is the author of two books, The Myth of Sex Addiction of 2012 and Insatiable Wives, Women Who Stray and the Men Who Love Them, 2009. And David writes a regular column for Psychology Today. And I think you also write for the Good Men Project. Uh, You know, I used to write for them. Um, I'm sure they still have some of my stuff up. I don't think I've written for them in a little while, but all good. And... He um, he writes regular columns about porn, sex, sexuality, and all things related. Welcome, David. Well, thanks for having me. I'm happy to chat. My pleasure. First of all, let's dive straight into the topic of pornography. And I know that there is a there's a popular p- perception that too much pornography use can be harmful and that there can even be such a condition as porn addiction or sex addiction. I know that's, I think that's not a classification in the DSM, but there's a popular conception of this, which I know that you have debunked. So could you talk me through why why you don't think there can be such a thing? Let's start from sex addiction. So, uh, you know, I kind of fell into um, that area. Uh, my first book was about, you know, female um, sexuality and, and infidelity, essentially. So uh, in my first book, I told the story of a, a guy who had had uh, three marriages and three divorces because he was really interested in seeing his wife with other men. And um, uh, that was the topic of, the, of that first book. And in the book, I, I just kind of mentioned casually that it would be easy to diagnose the guy as a sex addict, but I don't believe in sex addiction. And it was very interesting to me that the media um, at the time was more interested in talking about that than talking about female sexuality, the main topic of my book. And and I was interested because prior to that, I really hadn't been exposed to the degree to which the idea of sex addiction had been so um easily and and sort of thoroughly adopted by the by popular psychology and mainstream media um so i i spent about a year and a half uh researching and reading and interviewing and and reviewing all the literature and then ended up publishing my book called the myth of sex addiction where i really argued that uh the concept of sex addiction is uh it really represents the intrusion of moral sexual values into clinical practice. And we see this when we recognize that the idea of sex addiction was really introduced uh, in our world and particularly in the United States 
um, following the HIV and AIDS crisis of the early 1980s. And it's not by accident that uh, gay and bisexual men are at three times the risk of being labeled as sex addicts. Um, we also see that you know violations of sexual fidelity or monogamy are, are commonly diagnosed as, as sex addiction. The research has really has really held up um, uh, and supported my opinions. Um, the idea of sex addiction has not been diagnosable in the American Psychiatric Association's uh, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual since uh, it was it was very briefly diagnosable in the 1980s, but has been rejected since then because there's just no science to support it. What we what the science has shown in the in the past 30 or 40 years actually though is that there are people who get diagnosed as sex addicts by by therapists and typically that is people who are having some kind of sex that the therapist doesn't like um, or, uh, you know, Kinsey, the famous, you know, American researcher in the 1950s, 40s and 50s, um, said that the definition of a nymphomaniac or a sex addict in today's language is anybody who has more sex than the therapist. So if you're getting laid more than your therapist, your therapist is likely to tell you you're a sex addict. However, the second group we see is people who self-diagnose as sex addicts. Um, and these are people who, for whatever reason, they feel like they have difficulty controlling their sexual behavior. And interesting research pretty consistently um, finds that about 10 to 12 percent of people report that they sometimes feel like they can't control or are worried that they will get in trouble for their sexual behaviors. But what's really interesting is that while 10 to 12 percent of people report that feeling, only around one to two percent of people, if that, report actually getting in trouble or experiencing behavioral problems for their sexual behaviors. So that leads us then to question, well, what's going on? Why would 10 to 12 percent of people sometimes feel like they might get in trouble for their sexual behavior? And what we what we find is that the number one predictor of the feeling of sexual uh, of being addicted to sex, the feeling that you uh, can't control your sexual behavior, the number one predictor of that feeling is not your sexuality, but your religiosity. And so what we what we find today is that there are many, many people who want to engage in sexual behaviors that they feel are wrong. And the reason that they feel those behaviors are wrong is because they conflict with the religious or moral teachings that they received as children. Um, so, what, you know, so, so we see this in, for instance, <clears throat> gay or bisexual men who were raised in religious traditions where male homosexuality is condemned. Those men very often report a period of feeling as though they are addicted to sex because they want to make those sexual desires for sex with other men go away, and they can't. Um, the other thing that we see is particularly related to pornography, and, and pornography is where you started. Pornography addiction, this, this kind of current sort of idea that use of pornography is like a drug and that you, that you can't control it. What we see is that people who identify as porn addicts, people who identify as sex addicts as well, neither of them are having more sex or watching more porn or masturbating any more than anybody else, but they feel worse 
worse about it. And the reason that self-identified porn addicts feel worse about the sex that they're having is, again, because of this moral conflict, because they're engaging in a behavior that they were taught is immoral or wrong. They do so, it feels great, and then after they finish, after they have an orgasm, they're overwhelmed with shame and uh, try to make those thoughts go away. There was this marvelous research in Israel last year by a researcher named um, Efrati, and he showed that the more religious somebody is, the harder they work to make thoughts of sex go away, to suppress their thoughts of sex. And what, what of course, everybody who's listening knows is that the harder you work to make a thought go away, the stronger it becomes. You know, don't think of a white elephant. And right now, everybody is thinking of a white elephant. And the harder you work to not think of a white elephant, the more you think about it. Um, so what is fascinating is that the idea of porn addiction and sex addiction is this circular kind of self-fulfilling prophecy where the more you work to make these thoughts of sex or pornography use go away, the stronger they become. And the stronger they become, the more you hate yourself. And the more you feel like there's something wrong with you because you can't make these go away, and then you try even harder to make the thoughts go away. And it ends up in this just god-awful shame spiral where people are hating themselves, feeling miserable um, about their sexual desires, many of which are actually fairly normative. I'm, I'm sure this is true in a more statistical sense, but in both the cases that I personally have encountered where people have told me they felt addicted to sex. Um, I don't feel it had anything to do with shame. It's about not being able to control an impulse to compulsively do something at a time when you really need to be doing something else. So in one case, it was an old uh, housemate of mine and who was just, he was constantly on it wasn't grinder in those days but whatever the the website thing was back then um and meeting strangers and having sex with them and he would end up he he lost his job he was late for job interviews when he was supposed to be kind of doing job searches and applications instead he was having sex with many strangers and spending the entire day doing that. And I would classify that as an addiction. And it's not that he had any shame about the sex. It's that his fixation on having sex was really affecting his ability to function as an adult, his financial solvency. And the other example was a, a, a friend of mine who also said that she really needed she was very happy when she was having a, um, an affair and she was very happy when her lover left because she said that she was she was turning up late for class. She's a she's a university lecturer. She was constantly turning up late for class and she was reprimanded by the dean and all kinds of things uh, because she couldn't like tear herself away, uh, get out of bed, get dressed and go to the university in time. So I think there must surely be cases like that where it's where there is sort of failure to control an impulse like people overeating or or whatever else. 
So these are good cases, I think, that that elucidate one of my main points, which is that we get distracted by sex and we overattend to sexual behaviors and oftentimes ignore other issues that are going on. So, for instance, in the first case, you identified that the man who's, you know, having lots of casual sex, I would I would I would suggest two possible additional hypotheses. One is that we see a very high frequency of sexual behavior um, in men who have recently come out as gay. And we and we see a very high level of kind of casual sex, you know, numerous sexual encounters, etc., as they now embrace their sexual identity. That's one thing that we see. Uh, the second thing, however, we see in men is that men very commonly use sex as a way to deal with anxiety and depression. Mm. And so it, historically, we have seen that uh, there are men who are having lots of sex or men who are watching lots of pornography. And those men happen to also have high levels of anxiety disorders or depression. So oftentimes in the past, it was suggested that the high frequency of sex or pornography was causing the sexual, was causing the depression or the anxiety. However, longitudinal research found that, in fact, the anxiety or the depression came first and that men were using that sexual behavior as a way to feel better. I would at least hypothesize the possibility that the re- one of the reasons your, your roommate was engaging in those sexual behaviors was because it was one of the only things that made him uh, able to not think about the um, stress and depression and anxiety that he had in his life about struggling to find a job and not doing well, etc. The sad thing is that he didn't have other coping strategies to use. He didn't have other ways to manage those feelings. And sex is a very, very good way to change the way your brain is feeling at the moment, um, particularly when we are feeling all of these negative feelings. Right. Now, the second case that you throw out and in terms of the the woman um, in this in this new relationship and and she's having lots of sex, um, we have to acknowledge two things there. One is that uh, when we start a sexual relationship with somebody, we we enter into what what is commonly kind of called the honeymoon phase where we are obsessed with our new partner and we can't stop thinking about them and we want to have sex with them all the time. That is simply a biological kind of phenomenon that is heavily evolutionarily influenced. Um, it really does result in some neurochemical changes. You know, during that period, um, our neurochemistry changes, and we become more more sensitive to touch. You know, ju- just feeling as of, of touch of another person on our skin feels better during that period than it does later on. And so it makes sense that she, during that honeymoon phase, that honeymoon period, was wanting to have sex with this guy all the time. Even- a, a woman, but yeah, a woman actually, but... Okay. Well, there you go. And and the research actually shows that when we are turned on, we lose track of time. Um, that our ability to, to, to measure the passage of time is impaired by sexual arousal. So rather than uh, the second thing I would say is 
that, um, you know, female sexuality has very commonly been suppressed in society and women, you know, women experience slut shaming um, at extraordinarily, extraordinarily high levels. And so when a woman finds, um, you know, a sexual encounter or a sexual experience that is very reinforcing, um, that can be very, very rewarding for her. I, I guess the point I'll make is that Calling these things an addiction is a overly simplistic explanation for a highly contextual and highly individual issue. Um, we know now that, in fact, the term addiction has relatively little scientific value anymore because the, the what addiction basically means at this point is some kind of form of you're doing something too much by the judgment of somebody. It is at a scientific level and at a clinical level, it is more valuable to us to understand the context and the individual nature of what is going on with people that are engaging in problem behaviors that might result in consequences rather than talking about addiction. Because when we talk about addiction, we, we, we bring in a lot of additional language. So we bring in kind of the, the, the ideas and our thinking around alcohol, for instance, um, and around 12-step kind of AA mythology. So when we think about alcohol, for instance, if we call something an addiction, then we're assuming that there's a withdrawal period, for instance, or that you will, uh, you know, that, that you can experience negative physiological symptoms if you don't have that substance. If you take away alcohol from a person who has been a long-term alcoholic, they can actually experience seizures and die because their brain has become physiologically dependent upon that substance. But nobody in the history of the world has ever died from blue balls. Nobody ever dies when they don't get to have sex. They might feel, they might feel a little irritated. They might feel a little depressed or rejected, but they don't die and they don't experience physiological symptoms. Secondly, the idea of uh, when we look at AA and the 12-step kind of approach to addictions, we are incorporating a disease model. We're incorporating the idea that, um, that there is something physiologically wrong with you for wanting this thing, um, and that the answer, the cure is abstinence, to not do that, to not have that anymore. But the research actually shows that 70% of people who are dependent on alcohol get better on their own without treatment and without um, abstinence. They return to a moderate level of use. Um, applying that thinking to sex, we then would have to, to, to start saying, again, the answer here is not to stop the sex, but to figure out what is going on that's leading you to feel less control over it and to increase your feelings of self-control and integrate that behavior into your life. You know, I, I, I treated a guy who had been diagnosed as a sex addict by both of his wives um, and by two different therapists that he and his wives saw. The guy really, really wanted to be a swinger. He really, really wanted to have sex with other people um, and to watch his wife have sex with other men, etc. Um, and 
both, but neither of the two wives were into it, and neither of the two therapists thought that was a healthy kind of behavior. So they they told him he was a sex addict because he couldn't, um, you know, put that thought or desire away, and it was something that he was a, a bit compulsive and obsessive about. Talking about pornography, um, I know that your research suggests that not only is there no correlation between pornography use and sexual abuse or violence, but there is a quite strong, there's a robust um, reverse correlation, which is what I would kind of expect, because I know that there's, um, there's been no proven link between violent video games and real life violence, for example. And there is evidence to suggest that in um, that there is there is also a kind of reverse link between violent video games and real life violence. So in Japan, for example, where violent video games and porn are very very common, it's they have one of the lowest levels of of actual violence in the world. And I have had some thoughts and about that because I wonder whether there is um, a way in which being able to live out some of our impulses by proxy, by consuming fiction, might have a have a dampening effect um, and maybe prevent some people, nudge some people away from living those things out in real life. Do you have any feelings about that? I think that's, a, you know, certainly a fair um, theory. I mean, the... The research, and, and it's it's not actually my research, but it's research by a number of different researchers um, across the world, has found that as access to pornography goes up, rates of sexual violence, um, assault, rape, and sexual abuse of children goes down. Um, at least one theory is consistent with what you said, that these are um, – that, that men who may be at risk for engaging in sexual violence are using pornography and masturbation to pornography as a way to um, essentially get that release, to, to, to explore that fantasy or that idea or that sexual desire in a way that is private and doesn't threaten other people. Um, now, there is one group, however, <clears throat> where we have to put a caveat in. And that caveat is that there is research that says that about five to 7% of men, if they watch what is called violent pornography or you know, a misogynistic pornography or you know, pornography that depicts sexual violence, um, that those men are at increased risk of engaging in sexual violence or, or rape. Um, However, that, that you know, it's only 5% of men compared to 95% of men. So then we need to understand, again, why those 5% of men are different. When we look at those 5% of men, what we find is that the higher the rates of, uh, of antisocial personality disorder, the more these men feel like the rules don't apply to them. The lower levels of empathy that they have towards victims and the higher levels of misogyny or anger towards women, the more likely that those men are going to have increased risk of sexual violence from watching sexual violent pornography. So what that means is that the pornography is not the cause 
values. And, and, that, and that is ultimately, I think, the, the main message that I have about all of these issues is that we, we assume that pornography or we assume that sexuality is the cause, that it's the causal factor. Usually it is more of an effect. It is more of a symptom of other issues. Um, and in these men, their risk of sexual violence and engaging in rape is driven by those personality features, not by pornography. Porn use of pornography can be a risk factor if you have those pre-existing, um, you know, uh, personality dispositions. Um, so what, what's really interesting, though, is that there's no evidence that restricting pornography from those men or changing the pornography that they watch would change their uh, risk for engaging in sexually violent behavior. But unfortunately, in, in you know, the United Kingdom a couple of years ago, banned pornography that depicted rape or sexual violence in the idea that they were trying to prevent or reduce risk of sexual violence in the United Kingdom. Unfortunately, what the research shows is that A, that strategy is unlikely to be successful, and B, they are disproportionately impacting females because women search for rough sex and violent sex pornography at three times the rate that men do. Um, why? Because they are explore just as you suggested, they're exploring that fantasy through this, you know, safe kind of erotic uh, experience with pornography and masturbation, um, rather than exploring it in real life. Mm. I mean, I do. I'm I'm very familiar with because I I taught the 18th century novel when I was an academic, so I'm I'm familiar with kind of moral panics around fiction. And the idea which has been mooted again and again um, over history that watching certain types of fiction will influence your real life behavior. And repeatedly, we see that people are not that permeable to fiction, that most people have a, a very um, clear sense of a distinction between real life and suspension of disbelief. And I I think it's hard to square that with arousal, but I, um, my own sort of sort of theory, all of my very my completely um, unscientific theories are coming out here. Um, hypotheses are just guesses, actually. I won't dignify them with a word hypothesis, um, but uh, you know, I so I enjoy watching. Um, Special Victims Unit, the Law and Order series, which is which depicts all kinds of horrifying um, rapes and sexual assaults, um, and I mean I can kind of I can't actually watch the part where the rape or sexual assault is happening. I have to look away, but I still enjoy watching the series, um, and so is that really that different from? watching why is it that i i find that i i wouldn't be worried if my boyfriend watched law and order um or you know watched murder mysteries or read all of those norwegian um noir um murder murder writers um but but i would feel very disturbed if he was watching pornography if he was masturbating to pornography of rape 
for example. Yeah. Why why is there that why why do we feel that intuitive distinction? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I, I first, I, you know, I really, um, uh, uh, I am struck by your reference to, you know, kind of seventeenth and and eighteenth century kind of literature. It makes me think about Fanny Hill and the, um, you know, the, the of panic um, over that, you know, over that book of of sexual, you know, female sexual expression and how everybody reacted to that. Um, I, I completely agree with you. I think that we. Historically, we have lots of, of, of examples of people getting very concerned about sexuality and sexuality in fiction in a way that we don't get concerned about violence. Um, and, and but it was per- it was much it was much broader than sexuality. It was just reading romantic wish fulfillment novels, mm-hmm. uh, maids reading novels about kind of um, Pamela marrying her employer and getting ideas above their station, mm-hmm. people being lost in daydreams, women being lost in daydreams because of course women were particularly susceptible, quote unquote. And I right. think we do have a lot of, there is also a lot of anxiety about violence. Um, uh, I mean, we allow more violence to be shown um, mm-hmm. than we allow graphic sex to be shown. And that suggests something of skewed um, priorities to me. But uh, at the same time, I think people are very anxious also about about uh, violence. Look at all the the controversy over the the Joker movie. Yeah, and I think the the question is, you know, are we doing what we need to do to have a safe society and and a safe world? And what is different, I think, between violence and sexuality is that we have a better idea of what reality is when it comes to violence. I think that, you know, young people... Uh, who might watch the Joker, you know, they, they have also seen and heard, you know, stories in the media about school shootings and about the damage that that does to victims and how that impacts people. So we have a better idea of what kind of the reality of violence is. But when we look at sex, you know, we, we kind of don't. You mentioned a term a moment ago, the suspension of disbelief. Where and and that is where we watch a video or we watch a movie or we read a book and we momentarily suspend our expectations of reality in order to enjoy this fictional narrative. But when it comes to sex, you can only quote suspend disbelief if you know what reality is. And I think one of the big challenges that we have right now, kind of worldwide, is that we have young people who have been unprepared for the reality of sex in the United States and in Canada and many religious areas around the world. Young people receive very little sex education to help them understand that good sex and healthy sex and positive sex requires a lot of work. It requires communication, negotiation, consent, attention to safety, um, you know, making sure nobody is being exploited or taken advantage of. But if you have not received any sex education to know what real sex is, then you learn about sex from pornography, which is widely and easily available. 
And in pornography, it makes sex look easy, right? You don't have to you don't have to actually work all that hard to give somebody an orgasm. You just push the button, right? Um, somebody just shows up, and women are instantly willing and orgasmic at a moment's notice. That I think is the big issue here because. We are not preparing people for the world of real sex. And in contrast, I will, you know, point out the you know, the country of the of the Netherlands and Amsterdam, for instance, where they start sex education at very early ages uh, in Scandinavia as well. They start sex education around age five or seven, and it is age appropriate sex education. They're not doing graphic videos or stuff like that, but they are preparing people to understand what sex is when they are old enough to engage in it. And what is fascinating is that countries that do early and comprehensive sex education like that have lower rates of teen pregnancy, lower rates of sexual assault, lower rates of sexually transmitted infection. And so there there is something that's very healthy about talking about what sex really is as opposed to keeping it secret and letting people learn about it from fiction, which is what pornography is. Right. Because, I mean, sex usually takes place in private, um, real life sex, whereas violence can also take place in the public sphere. So we have a we have a kind of more of a a benchmark. Is that what you mean? I think that's a yeah, I think that's a very well a nice way of saying it. We have we have more of a benchmark and we have more of an idea of what of what the reality kind of is that we can expect and that we can try to live up to. One of the you know, one of the things that I hear about is women and men who feel disappointed or bothered by the sex that their partner is trying to have with them because they feel like their partner is trying to have porn kind of sex. Right. What that means is that the partner has not talked with them about what kind of sex they find arousing or want to have, and they just kind of jump into the sort of sex that they saw in the videos um, without understanding that the sex they're having in pornography um, involved a whole lot of consent and planning and negotiation and acting. That's right. Um, and and so again, I think that we can we can help people address these issues through better sex education, rather than you know, for instance, blaming the media or blaming the medium. You know, if, if a young man watches, you know, the the Joker movie, or if a young man watches Superman and then dies jumping off a building because he thinks he can fly, nobody blames the movie for that. Instead, they, they hold society, the person, um, the, the community, their family equally responsible. But when it comes to sex, we are not adequately taking responsibility for the fact that we created many of these problems through a failure to do effective sexual education. Hmm. I mean, I have to, um, I, I would defend porn anyway, because I'm a free speech extremist. Yeah, when it comes to free speech, I mean, you know, pornography is a challenging issue because people want to treat it differently because it's about sex. But the reality is that pornography is just information, um, just like any other medium. 
and the the attempts to restrict it have much more to do with our distrust and our fear of sexuality um, as opposed to any other issue. I think that, I, I mean, I wonder, there are, of course, some disturbing things. And one of them came up in the in the research that I was doing on circumcision, which I know that you and I have briefly touched upon when we were chatting to uh, Brian Earp, who has been a guest on this podcast also. And I recently did a very deep dive into that topic. And I encountered a lot of parents telling me that they wanted to have their son circumcised because women prefer that the appearance of kind of scar tissue to skin because they have seen that on porn. So they were kind of using porn as a reason to uh, as a reason to remove their infant's foreskin and I find that very disturbing actually and problematic. And this is one of the places where it seems like porn and the demands of porn and the demands of real life just collide because on porn you want to have no foreskin presumably so that you can see what is going on because what is important is the visual but in life you want to have a foreskin because what is important is or to most people is sensation so people are kind of sacrificing sensation for for aesthetics and aesthetics are based around the demands of the camera. I don't know if I'm making sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a similar thing here in Argentina that we have a lot of young girls having breast enlargement operations. And this is also justified with men prefer it, and we know that because uh, because of porn. And this is a bit of a problem here. Some people are having this from at age 15, age 16, Um, when their bodies haven't even necessarily stopped developing. And it can also cause a loss of of sensation, loss of nerve sensation in the nipples, etc. So I find that somewhat, I find that disturbing that we are kind of actually allowing, modifying our bodies in a way that will give us less pleasure in order to conform to an aesthetics that is designed for the demands of the camera. You know, um, the thing I often point out when it, when we talk about circumcision or male circumcision, uh, to be specific, is that that is a a uh, you know social norm that was introduced into the Western world um, in the eighteen late eighteen hundreds by Kellogg. Yes, Kellogg yes, Kellogg. of course. Well, no, I'm not Kellogg. Kellogg wasn't the first, but yes, it it dates from um, the Victorian neonatal it's nothing to do with porn it didn't start with porn it's just that people are now using that as a justification but it but it started as an attempt to prevent masturbation right Um, right right and, and i think that again that i think is one of the issues is that we we distrust masturbation one of the reasons that we distrust masturbation particularly in the victorian era was that you know we believed that people who focused on the spiritual world, the ethereal plane, were more moral than people who were distracted or focused on the physical world. 
And there is nothing more physical than sexual and sensual pleasure, particularly masturbation, which doesn't have the justification of love or procreation that physical sex with another partner does. And so um, masturbation is held up as kind of this, you know, archetype of selfish uh, physical temptation. Um, and that we should reject that in order to be more moral and better people and more more spiritual in nature. Um, the interesting thing, and I'll circle back, when we look at, you know, for instance, um, people who, women uh, and men who engage in pubic hair shaving which is oftentimes blamed on pornography. People say, well, everybody is shaving their, their pubic hair because it's so popular in pornography. But the research actually finds that people who engage in pubic hair shaving or trimming enjoy sex more, and they enjoy the, 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 the look of their genitalia and body more. And so it's not about pornography, but it's about pleasure. Um, there, you know, maybe there, for maybe for some, but I certainly had the experience, and other friends of mine have had the experience that a younger lover demanded that I have my um, my vulva completely waxed, and I did not want to do this because it's painful, and I really dislike having ingrown hair. And I, his his feeling was also, I grew up seeing no hair on a woman, so I can't deal with the idea of hair. And um, that was a deal breaker for me. But um, some of my women friends just have gone ahead and gone wax, got waxed in that situation. They hate it, but it's what is kind of wanted. Which would be cured by um, effective sex education and by helping these young men to understand that, you know, what is seen in pornography is just a fictional presentation of sexuality in women's bodies. Um, you know, the, there was some recent research looking at women who engage in labiaplasty, who have, you know, surgery done on their, um, on their labia um, to make them either more or less prominent. And it, that is also commonly kind of blamed on pornography. But when the researchers looked at it, they said that pornography um, explained less than 2% of the variance in these women. So pornography in the women's use or in their partner's use. But the thing that explained the most variance in women wanting to have surgery on their labia were two things, fashion magazines and yoga pants. That, you know, you know, as women learned what their what labia were supposed to look like from fashion magazines and as society has as more women have embraced wearing yoga pants um, where, you know, women's labia may be prominently visible um, uh, through the through the material of the pants, they then um are having surgery done because of the idea of what they're supposed to look like. It's the mm. same as we see in these in these men who have this idea of what you know women's genitalia are supposed to look like. And the way we deal with both of those is through more effective sex education, through more effective discussion of the fact that these presentations of, of people's bodies, whether it's in pornography, fashion magazines, um, etc., is not real. 
that it is an idealized presentation um, of what the human body looks like. And that we, in order for us to better accept the diversity of body types, we need to be presenting that more in media. Mm. I wanted to just bring up a slightly different issue, which is that I think that, so we're talking now about the healthiness of sex, masturbation, sexual feelings, etc. And I understand your emphasis on this, but I also think that it's there. It's not quite, to me, it's not quite that simple because um, what we have here, and this is why I also understand the kind of monastic uh, impulse, is clamorous sort of needs of the body, which may not which really may not overlap with your wishes as the kind of the the other part of you, as it were, the other part of your multitudes that you contain. And I'm always um I I I think a lot about something that happened to a friend of mine, which an anecdote that I, I love to tell. It just seems so it's um Im, uh, important and kind of telling. Um uh, my friend was on a date with this guy and they were um, having, you Americans would say, fooling around. I think you mean foreplay when you say that, but I'm never mm-hmm. quite sure. Yeah, it's a pretty broad term. It can mean a lot of things. Right. Um, it's so cute the way you guys call it fooling around. <laughs> anyway, they were having foreplay and um, and she said, okay, that's it. I, I, I'm going to go to bed now. I need you to go home. And he said, why do you want me to go? Because your body is clearly responding to me. And she said, and I loved this, she said, but my body isn't the boss here. I am. And I think that it's certainly possible to feel a sexual arousal that you don't want to live out and go with for whatever reasons. Sometimes you really do want to be the boss. And what you're feeling makes you uncomfortable. And that discomfort is not to do with just being kind of a, a prude, but it is to do with what what you actually wish for. And the healthy thing is to take control. You know, I, I agree. I mean, I think that um, what I say, though, is that we need to extend that to sort of all feelings. That The feeling of sexual arousal is really no... Dis- different. It's not distinct from the feeling of excitement or the feeling of anger or the feeling of sadness. And that we as people have the, have the remarkable ability to experience a feeling, but not let the feeling be in charge. Um, you know, one of the things I do in therapy often is invite mm. people to sit with a feeling, but not act on it. What, it, what would it be like to just sit there and feel the anger, but not let the anger out, not, 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 not shout or throw things or be angry at somebody, be violent towards somebody? Um, because we can feel things, 
and still be in control of our behavior. Um, and I think that that's one of the values of modern mindfulness training, which, you know, really invites us to just observe our feelings. Hey, I wonder what's going on right now. I am feeling really angry. I wonder why that is. Um, she, your friend in this remarkable anecdote, is kind of doing the same thing. She's saying, yes, I am feeling aroused, but that doesn't mean that I have to act on it. Um, that. I think that's I think that's maturity. Mm, mm. Yeah, I thought it was badass. I, <laughs> um, I I also feel that there is this tendency. It's not just with sexual feelings, um, but since we're talking about sex, it's relevant to this. But it's really not just with sexual feelings to to just kind of hyper analyze and micromanage and feel shame for things that you are feeling that you don't act even act upon. And it's something that I have come across a lot because I teach, um, well, I used to be a professional tango dancer and teacher. Um, so I've spent a lot of time doing Argentine tango. And I um, tango has this kind of sensual element. Um, it needn't be sexual I and mean, people dance with all kinds of different partners. Um, and but I think of I describe tango as being a kind in a liminal space between sex and mm -hmm. art, but usually securely on art side of the border, but close enough that you just get some occasional glimpses of tantalizing glimpses of the other side. It's it's more like a memory or method acting or a um and I do find some people very, I would say, paranoid about their own possible feelings. They're like, but what if I feel attracted to the person, but I'm in a relationship with someone else? And what if I feel that, ha you know, feel this sexual feeling? And they're not usually concerned about actual palpable genital arousal, which is not, which is rare in tango because you have to focus a lot, especially the leader. So I think it's quite rare when you're concentrating that hard to um, have an erection. Um, but it's, it's really primarily, I mean, some people do fear that, but really the primary fear is of feelings. And I feel like um, you should just chill out about your own feelings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly agree. I mean, we we see a lot of people, I certainly see a lot of people who, you know, feel like there is something wrong with them, that they have a certain sex fantasy or a certain sexual desire or even a certain sexual reaction. Um, you know, there are many women, unfortunately, who feel tremendous shame for the fact that they got sexually aroused or maybe even had an orgasm during um, a, an experience of sexual assault or rape. And, you know, one of the things I explain to them and, and help them understand is that, that 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 appears to be part of the way your body was made, that at an evolutionary level, women whose bodies got sexually aroused or lubricated during sexual experiences, even rape, experience lower rates of abrasion and infection. 
But women are ashamed for that reaction because they, they have this idea that, oh, well, it must mean you were asking for it or it must mean you liked it. Um, and and they, don't, they don't admit that and they're afraid that they're going to be judged. And unfortunately, in some cases, you know, um, there was one woman a few years ago, uh, very sadly, who, you know, um, uh, she was raped. And before she uh, before the man penetrated her, she handed him a condom and said, look, would you at least use this? And that was held up um, in court as evidence of consent that she wanted it. Um, opposed to, to evidence of her, you know, being thoughtful and mindful about not wanting to be exposed to, to sexually transmitted infection. So I think that we have so much shame and stigma around particularly sexual feelings that in many cases, we're not really able to control. We can't turn off what turns us on sometimes. And what we can learn we can learn mm. to be aware of it and then to make decisions without that necessarily being in charge. Um, and it goes back to, you know, your point about helping us to recognize, distinguish that um, just control something doesn't mean it's true. And I'll go back to, you know, the men or women who feel like they are out of control of their sexuality, feel like they can't control their sexual desires. Just because they feel that way doesn't actually mean they are not in control. And the research actually shows that people who feel like they can't control their sexual behaviors, they don't demonstrate any more sexual behaviors than anybody else. And there's no evidence that they're not actually in charge of their sexual behaviors, even when they feel like they're out of control. I think people who are judgmental about a woman who became became physically aroused or orgasm during rape, it seems to me like a failure of empathy because I think that uh, certainly I and some of my friends I've spoken to, but surely many people have experienced this disjunction between what you what you want mentally and are mentally attracted to and what your body is responding to. Um, we've all surely been kind of surprised by our arousal at something we also find kind of disgusting or horrible. Um, and I per I had this experience, which um, I'm going to TMI everybody. So if you are listening with your children <laughs> in the unlikely event um, <laughs> that you chose this show. Um, but I was watching the film um, Lust Caution. I don't know if you've seen that film. I have. It, it, sounds, it sounds interesting. Uh, it's So it's the film is, at the center of the film is a relationship between a Japanese woman and a Chinese man. And it's during the Chinese, um, it's during the Japanese occupation of China, during the fascist occupation of China. Um, and the Japanese woman is, is a honey trap. She's working for the uh, I mean, the Chinese woman, sorry, is a honey trap. She's working for the Chinese resistance. And she has, she is, um, she's been sent to seduce this high ranking Japanese officer. And she finds herself kind of against her will attracted to him, but she doesn't fall in love with him or anything corny like that. She has a purely physical response to their relationship. And their relationship is also quite, really quite sick. 
on both sides. There's all kinds of emotional nastiness. It's horrible. It's horrible. And I find the film incredibly arousing. Um, and I just also felt sort of sick um, at exactly one and the same moment. I'm sure this can't, I can't be the, the unique person to have had this kind of experience, this kind of deep ambivalence where you feel like it's almost like your body has betrayed you with its responses, but at the same time, you are feeling a revulsion in mm -hmm. your mind. You know, it makes me think about uh, this marvelous research by a, a, a psychologist named Meredith Chivers, where she looked at, um, you know, women's response to, to sexual uh, imagery and, and stimuli, including pornography and such, and, and showed that women actually demonstrate a, a, a quite universal kind of response of physiological arousal to a diversity of stimuli, gay, straight, even videos of monkeys having sex, many women's bodies demonstrate physiological arousal, um, even though the women report that they're not feeling psychologically turned on. And one of the messages of that research is that um, women are unfortunately taught often to suppress feelings of sexual arousal. Um, and, you know, from that message that, you know, if you display or act on being sexually turned on by a variety of things, then you're a slut and you should be ashamed or embarrassed of that. Um, it, when we look at men, though, it's very interesting that men's bodies tend to correspond with psychological arousal in men. So that if a straight man watches straight pornography, he gets turned on psychologically and physiologically. If a gay man watches you know, gay porn, he gets physiologically and psychologically turned on. But there was this one group of men that were very interesting in that they identified as being straight, but their bodies demonstrated physiological arousal to homosexual pornography. And what they found was that these were men who were homophobic. The, the higher levels of anti-homosexual um, beliefs that they had actually predicted the degree to which they would get physiologically turned on to homosexual pornography. But it was, it was in the same kind of vein that you just said where the men felt like their bodies were betraying them because the men didn't want to be gay, but their penises were. And, and I think that again is this, is this unfortunate kind of message that we have put out that you are somehow morally responsible for the things that your body reacts to. Although I think it's also, it, it's also, and I'm, I'm sure you agree, it's also fine to decide you don't want to, you, you don't want to experience that kind of arousal. Like, you know, if you find yourself attracted to your sister or something, you might decide, okay, I'm not going to, I'm, I'm not going to go into the situation where I will feel that That's kind right. of thing. Um, and I think you can, you can separate those two things That's out right. though. It's not like, your body is telling the truth and your mind is lying. That's that's why people are sort of blaming the rape victims. It's like your body's truth is greater than the mind's truth. But I, I think that is a false mm -hmm. assumption. And, and unfortunately, the more we shame ourselves um, for those kinds of arousals or feelings or needs, the less control we have over them. 
you know, I talk about a concept that I call sexual integrity, where, you know, you do a, a full kind of analysis of yourself and accept that these are the sexual aspects of myself. You know, I am aroused by things. I do have fantasies about things that I would not act on in the real world. And there's nothing wrong with me for having those desires or fantasies. But if I choose to act on them, then I hold myself responsible for engaging in an unethical uh, uh, behavior that is contrary to my beliefs and values. And I think I, I think that's a more sophisticated way to approach these issues where we take responsibility for the things that we can be responsible for our behaviors as opposed to our physical reactions. Yeah, it's interesting. I think that we, and this is going to lead into uh, a last thing that I wanted to talk to you about. Um, but it's interesting. I think that we, uh, or some people, have have this tendency to blame the people that they are attracted to. They kind of blame people for making them feel um, arousal. And this is this is the kind of, I, I guess, thinking behind things like hijab and niqab and wanting women to cover up and being kind of angry at the sight of women in bikinis or whatever, which would expect would make men, straight men happy rather than angry. Um, and I, I do have a little bit of empathy with that because, you know, I feel a little bit angry when I see a really when I see a really tasty hamburger and fries, <laughs> I feel a little angry at the hamburger and fries, which is a completely inanimate object because it makes me feel like eating them and I don't want to eat them because I'm a little too fat. So I have some empathy with that, but it's still really odd. And I know that you had some experiences of, or I think it was in an article of yours that I was reading about misogyny within a within the sort of celibate mm -hmm. and no fap community. Could you tell us a little bit about the no fappers? So the the no fappers are this interesting kind of group. They're this they're these modern kind of online folks who have decided that um, uh, they don't want to masturbate. Fapping is the onomatopoeia sound of masturbation. And the no, no fap is a movement of, of online that is almost exclusively males who um, believe that masturbation, particularly to pornography, um, has weakened them, has led them to be less, less manly, less masculine, less successful in life, including in dating and, and getting a girlfriend female sexual partners. Um, it, it's kind of wild when you read their stuff because they they basically, they slide down this bizarre slippery slope where um, they start saying, okay, look, just, just by, by, by resisting the desire to masturbate, you're, you're kind of, you know, um, being more in charge of yourself. And then they end up with this kind of crazy sort of presentation that by not masturbating, it increases your testosterone, that it, um, that it, you know, that it almost gives you the ability <laughs> to fly. Um, when the research actually, the research is contrary. The research shows that, um, they actually experience a decrease in testosterone when they when they stop masturbating. Um, but what's interesting with the with these no fappers and the modern kind of anti masturbation kind of movement um, is that they first they they tend to be extremely sexist. Um, 
they are predominantly focused just on heterosexual sex and focused just on the men. And there's this this kind of idea that the men deserve sex um, and deserve real sex. And that they even argue these sort of crazy conspiracy theories that pornography is a Jewish conspiracy to undermine the white race, <laughs> leading, leading to you know all of these young teenage white men um, masturbating instead of going out and having sex. And, and, you know, procreating and, and, you know, furthering the white population and white race. It's really kind of wild and bizarre. These folks come after me like nobody's business because I'm, you know, I'm arguing against this idea that pornography changes their behavior or that masturbation weakens them somehow. And I'm, I'm basically arguing, look, you know, let, let's look at you as a person rather than focusing on the pornography. But you're right. I mean, a lot of these men, they, they have a lot of anger, um, uh, unfortunately, towards women that don't want to have sex with them. And what's wild is that these men blame pornography for that as opposed to owe themselves. Yeah, I mean, that anger is not exactly going to make them more attractive, yeah. I'm sure. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah that, that's a really strange that's a kind of a strange uh, community. It is, and I think the um, you know one of the one of the troubling things is that you know it, it, it to me at least is that it is an exploitation of um, our sexual anxiety, our sexual insecurity. You know, because you know we all. Um, are afraid sometimes of our sexual desires. We're afraid that our sexual desire may be something that is unique or uncommon or unhealthy, and so we keep it secret. Ninety percent of people never tell their their spouse um, or their therapist about what their sexual fantasies are because they're afraid that their sexual fantasy means is is unique and somehow reveals there's something wrong with them. Um, and that sexual anxiety, that insecurity, that our sexual desire means there's something wrong with us, it opens us up to being exploited. It opens us up to being manipulated. Um, you know, the fashion magazines, um, you know, if you remember the old Rolling Stones song where he says, you know, my, my, you know the, the commercial tells me my shirt's not white enough. There, we have we have many many examples of people using our insecurities as a way to manipulate us, to control our behavior, to get us to spend money on things that will make people like us or make us more like other people. And unfortunately, this this sexual anxiety, this insecurity here, um, is being manipulated and exploited by people who want to control your political values and beliefs. Um, and it's not by accident that many of the recent, uh, in a mass shootings in the United States, and even um, that, that, that guy in Canada who drove a van um, onto the sidewalk and, and ran over some people, many of these men were involved in these disturbing movements where they are telling men not to masturbate um, and to hate themselves if they do because it opens them up to this disturbing kind of level of, of exploitation and behavioral control. It's really, it's really surprising the obsession with 
masturbation, which, as you know, goes goes back a long way, um, and well, became most recently became a giant obsession in the mid 18th. Well, it began with a publication in 1769, and then really the craze caught on in about the 1840s, mm-hmm. um, and led to the introduction of circumcision in Britain, which was practiced in fairly common in Britain between 1880 and 1940, and was entirely tied to the belief that it would prevent men from masturbating, which was a complete misunderstanding of male sexuality, because um, they thought that if they made the penis less sensitive, men would be less motivated to seek sex. But (laughs) sex drive and sex pleasure are not the same thing. That is a misunderstanding of kind of the evolutionary purpose of male libido. Um, But also it's just uh, masturbation doesn't, who does it harm? It's really, it's really strange to think that this would be a concern for anybody. It's, you know, it literally affects absolutely nobody else. Yeah. It's just bizarre. Yeah, I, I agree. We certainly have, though, a lot of examples um, of, you know, cultural prohibitions against masturbation. Um, you know, even uh, some Asian traditions, you know, that talk about chi and the power of chi. The, in those traditions, men are encouraged not to masturbate because there's the idea, similar to Samuel Tissot, who wrote that Swiss uh, monograph in 1769. There is this idea that masturbation depletes you of some essential, powerful part of your spirit. Um, Now, whether these were all ways to control procreation or control sexuality, um, uh, or they were um, rejections of that physical, sensual pleasure. I, you know, I kind of don't know, but you're right. I mean, we, we are right now kind of obsessed with the danger of masturbation for no apparent reason. You know, masturbation, people who masturbate more um, tend to have healthier relationships, healthier lives, healthier bodies, healthier sexuality. Um, Men, you know, it's recommended that men have about 21 orgasms a month in order to have the best prostate health. Um, There are not a lot of men who are having sex with their partners 21 times a month. So in order to meet the doctor recommended number of orgasms a month, you kind of got to jerk off. Um, But we're not talking. Yeah, I think it's, yeah, I think it's also sort of under rated as 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 being useful in in partner mm-hmm. sex so so many men complaining about um premature ejaculation could just masturbating to orgasm before sex would surely be helpful for that that is a recommendation that many sex therapists such as myself often often make and i also um i'm going to tell a personal anecdote and tmi everybody but um i i I also had a boyfriend who was who took an extremely long time. It was very, very hard work because call me old fashioned, but I like the man to have an orgasm. Um, and uh, I, I, I really saw no way of finding compatibility with him until one of my female friends said, well, why don't you just send him 
to the bedroom in advance and he can get started on his own and then you can come in later and you can kind of like reduce the the enormous length of time that way it's very it's very helpful but Mm -hmm. um People don't seem to see it in that way. We do make similar recommendations oftentimes for women who, you know, struggle to have an orgasm without clitoral stimulation and, you know, use of the vibrator, for instance. And so we we have tried to decrease the stigma on women that they're supposed to be able to orgasm just from penetration and increase the degree to which, you know, women and men or women and women, um, you know, incorporate use of a vibrator during sex in order to achieve orgasm. It's basically the same thing. We, we I agree with you. We need to incorporate Incorporate, you know, masturbation and self-pleasure because we know what feels good for our bodies into the pleasure that we share with each other without kind of this judgment that if I masturbate or if your partner there is, you know, masturbating without you um, until you come in, that there must be something wrong with you or with him or with the couple. Um, again, masturbation is just masturbation, nothing more and nothing less. Yeah. Um, is there anything you've been wanting to say that I haven't given you a chance to say, David? Um, no, well, I'll just throw out, um, I actually have a third book that oftentimes doesn't come up. It, it's called Ethical Porn for Dicks, A Man's Guide to Responsible Viewing Pleasure. <laughs> and it actually is a book that I wrote for men um, that I men that I see who are struggling to integrate, you know, use of pornography into their lives in a kind of healthy and ethical and sort of thoughtful way. Um, and it's a it's a very conversational book. It's not a research heavy book. It's a book that I wrote imagining I was having a beer with a guy rather than um, lecturing at him like a therapist. And um it has been my answer to some of these issues that you've raised today about young men, for instance, that don't know what real sex is. Great. Thank you so much, David. Yeah. I will put all the details of your books uh, into the show notes. And um, it's been a, a pleasure, um, not a solo pleasure, a dual pleasure to have you on <laughs> this podcast. Very well said. Thank you. You've been listening to Two for Tea, the accompanying podcast for ARIO magazine. ARIO is a non-partisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant, edited by Helen Pluckrose with the assistance of sub-editor Yours Truly. At ARIO, we hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well-reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both ARIO and Two for Tea are entirely audience-supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both on Patreon. Look for ARIO, A-R-E-O, A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, and Two for Tea. All patrons will get access to free monthly patron-only podcasts and other perks. Plus, by becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. Two for Tea is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you're listening on a podcast app, take a moment to hit that subscriber button, give us a rating, write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. 
spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.